0: Hi, this is Dr. Adrian. Welcome to Health Bite, the podcast where we explore all things health and wellness. Hi there. Welcome back to our podcast Health Bite. I am super pleased today to have with me Diana Winston, who is the director of Mindfulness Education at UCLA's Mark the Mindful Awareness Research Center. Diana is an expert in this field. She has authored numerous books, including most recently The Little Book of Being Practices and Guidance for Uncovering Your Natural, Natural Awareness. She has also been interviewed widely and sought after as a speaker. In the settings of universities nonprofits corporations hospitals and schools, she is also one of the founding board members of the International Mindfulness Teachers Association and so I am so excited and uh, honored to have you here today Diana welcome Thank you so uh, Diana and I uh, we've spoken in the past and uh, you've shared that this work that you do presently was kind of a natural evolution of your upbringing. Um, how so can you tell us a little bit about how you came into this work?
1: Well, I did have, um, family who were sort of interested in Eastern philosophies when I was growing up. So there was definitely a, an interest and a wide exploration. I grew up in a family that ate a lot of health food back in the seventies when it was not very good. And, um, and dabbled in meditation and different types of, of practices. But I didn't really get interested in it until I was older, um, after college. But I, I, When I was in college, I traveled to Thailand as an exchange student, and I did not get interested. And I was sort of dabbling on the edges of like, oh, the, what's, the, what's happening in those Buddhist monasteries? But I didn't actually get, I, I mean, I, I did it in anthropo- anthropologically, but not personally. Right. Um, and then after college, when I was sort of thinking, what am I going to do with myself? I ended up going back to Asia, met, made my way to India and began, got first was very skeptical of the meditation practices, but then got very involved and very interested. I ended up doing a first meditation retreat. I was, um, in Dharamsala, India, where the Dalai Lama has government in exile. And so there were a lot of incredible, um, Buddhist masters that one could study with. And that began my journey right
0: there. And I love that you bring up this skepticism because I think for a lot of newcomers, there is a lot of skepticism. So it probably would be helpful for us to know how you manage that and how you overcame that to, to loving the practice.
1: <laughs> well, Skepticism is healthy and it's a good thing. So I'm, I'm very wary of people who tell you, okay, you have to believe this and then you jump into it and then um, without any sort of critical skepticism or checking it out. But um, for me... What made the biggest difference was actually doing the practice. So I heard they taught me a lot about the philosophy, and it sounded really intriguing. And it it just it definitely started to say, "Oh God, this really explains things about my life," and I want to learn more. But it was when I actually dug into the meditation practice and I started seeing its impact on my life. That's what I wouldn't say reverse my skepticism, but elated a little bit. You know, I was like, "Oh." This kind of works. Wow, I have a mind that's a little bit more peaceful now that I've just started meditating. So that's often what I will tell my students is check it out for yourself. Right. Do you see the benefit or not? Um, I will say now, though, I'll just add it's a different time. So that back then, that was 30 years ago, and I was one of very small number of people doing it. But sure. now there's all this scientific research supporting it, and those are... The, the scientific research, the way it's been adopted into the larger culture, mindfulness meditation, uh, that helps people a lot with the skepticism these days.
0: Right. And so it, it's kind of like that you have to take a little bit of a leap of faith and initiate the practice. And it's in the doing that you unravel some of that skepticism. Right. Uh, so I like that. And I do want to talk about the research, but Let's step back for a second and just, can you give us a definition? It is a buzzword these days, mindfulness, but can you define for us, or how do you define mindfulness?
1: I define mindfulness as paying attention to our present moment experiences with openness and curiosity and a willingness to be with that experience. And so if you think about it, like if you were to check into your mind at any point in the day, you'd probably notice that you're lost in the past or lost in the future. You're thinking about what happened, replaying it, going over it. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Or you're planning, obsessing, uh, thinking about the worst case scenario. And our minds, the research shows that about 50% of the time, our minds are in the past or the future. And when we're in the present moment, sometimes we're there, but we're often wishing it were a different present moment. You know what I mean? So mindfulness is that invitation to be here right now. And it's a skill that we can train our minds, we can train our attention to stay focused. And that will help with all sorts of things like difficult emotions, emotional regulation, and many, many things.
0: Right. And so you, you alluded to some of the research that's been done, and a lot of which has been done at your institution at UCLA. So can you highlight some of the important research you think that has come about in the last several years?
1: Sure. Um, so the research has really started 30 years ago, but there were very few studies. And now right. 30, 30 years later, we have probably five or 6,000 studies, which sounds great, except that there's like, it's, it's very small in relative comparison to if you were to say how many, heart, how many studies are there telling you that exercise is helpful for heart disease, you'd probably see 70,000 studies, right? So we have to right. understand that the mindfulness field is still young. It's growing. It's very promising. The research is quite exciting, but still early. Um, So some of the interesting research is in its impact on physical health. It helps with stress-related conditions. So it helps with um, high blood pressure. It helps with conditions connected to inflammation. It helps boost the immune system. It helps uh, beef up our healing response. So We did studies. So we've done maybe 15 studies at UCLA and the research is really being done worldwide. But one of our interesting studies in this regard was with insomnia patients. So we gave um, six week protocol to older adults who had insomnia and their insomnia symptoms really improved over just the six week period of mindfulness meditation. So it's that sort of, um, it's that the research is early, there's a lot more to do, but that that's one area, the area of um, physical health.
0: And I love that, you know, even though I think most people who practice or who have initiated practice find that it's challenging uh, to maintain that state of awareness, right? And so, it's this constant tug of war of coming back, coming back. But then the studies are showing that even short, relatively short durations, you can start to see these benefits in health, like the sleep. Uh, and you also mentioned immunity. I think one of the studies that I saw that really opened my eyes to this was a study in which they looked at uh, men who were participating in a exercise program at, at the Y and the incorporation of mindfulness meditation actually reduced their uh, CRP, which is an inflammatory marker that we can test as a, as a lab, as a blood test. So pretty dramatic um, benefits to even short duration of mindfulness, like you suggested. And so you were talking about also the behavioral benefits.
1: Yeah. And you're right there. The protocols tend to be around six to eight weeks and they do see changes and um, it's, you know, there's not a lot of good data on long-term follow-up like do these Behavioral changes stick, right? Yes, but um, but there are some studies that are starting to look at that, and so we'll look, we'll know more about that. Um, but yeah, so there's the physical health studies, there's the mental health studies. There's a lot of good, very robust research around anxiety and depression and how mindfulness can be helpful for the reasons that I was sort of saying before. But it's just our our minds tend to go to ruminating and to depressive thoughts or anxious thoughts, and if we learn to teach ourselves to we teach ourselves to come back to the present moment it can significantly reduce these the, the ruminations. And that can be quite helpful with anxiety and depression. Also good research on chronic pain. That's actually probably the most amount of studies done on how mindfulness can impact chronic pain. And with that, those studies show some pain reduction symptoms when people go through a mindfulness course of, say, eight weeks, like the mindfulness-based stress reduction. yes. But but it also shows the kind of more interesting finding in a way is that people's ability to tolerate the pain and their quality of life improves significantly, even if the pain symptoms don't reduce so much. So, um, so there's anyway, there's lots of great those that sort of mental health, physical health. There's a I can I can keep going if you and wish. The,
0: and the pain data that or, or the pain area, uh, that's kind of one of the segues in which mindfulness kind of impacted into the medical world, right? With John Kabat-Zinn's work, um, looking at pain scores and pain symptoms. So that, that is one of the first areas in which they started looking at this kind of medically, so to speak.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Uh Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so, so we talk about the formal practice of mindfulness meditation. um, but there's I, I want to know your thoughts on kind of informal practices or other ways in which we can be mindful. Um, you know, some people will report mindfulness in sewing or art or other creative work, cooking. Um, I personally feel like when I'm running, it's the, the time when I'm most quiet and kind of in the moment. So can you kind of define the formal practice uh, from the more informal and what are your thoughts on that? And And are there benefits to that? less formal type of mindfulness.
1: Yes, there are definitely benefits. And we can th- we can think of mindfulness in two ways. So there's mindfulness, you're you're making this distinction, the formal practice of mindfulness where you deliberately meditate. And we can talk about that and how one would do it, but where you sit down and you have a time and it's five minutes or 10 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it is. Informal practice is when we bring it throughout the day into our lives. And the, um, so informal practice is a really great way to practice. Mindfulness is both a meditation practice, it's also a quality of attention that we can have at any moment. So we can cultivate, we can have moments throughout the day where we're mindful, like you're washing the dishes and you decide to be, bring mindfulness to it instead of to sit in space out and worry about everything you have to do, but you just stay in the moment and feel the warmth of the water on your hand and wash the dishes and take a breath and notice your feet on the floor. This is a, a this is an application. This is the informal mindfulness practice. And you're gonna get something that is related and really important, which is that there are natural mindfulness moments or periods of time that many of us have in our day. And they're things like in the midst of athletic activity where you're really in the zone, right? Or um when we're doing art or creative activity or when we're out in nature and we just feel really connected and present. And these are mindfulness, uh, mindfulness experiences that pretty much most people have had. And that's important to know because I think people think, Oh, mindfulness is this really hard thing I have to work so hard at, but actually we all have access to it. It's part of being human. Right. And
0: is it true that doing the formal practice kind of allows uh, the mindfulness to trickle into your daily activities like the washing dishes etc
1: Absolutely. It's really important to practice on a daily basis just to get the skill under your belt so you know it. And it's I mean, that's one reason. But another reason is it's very nourishing. It's a wonderful thing to do to take some time for yourself. I mean, I think most of us lead these incredibly busy lives where we're giving and doing to everybody else. And my, meditating is a time for ourselves. Where we just go inward and pause and check in. And it's really e- extremely helpful.
0: Yeah, and I think our busyness. I mean, we always talk about how busy we are, right? And how quickly time flies. I feel like it's it's part of our regular salutation to each other, commenting on how quickly time flies. Mm-hmm. I even um, my six year old every Friday almost will will be exasperated and say, "Oh my God, Mom, is it really Friday?" <laughs> I don't, right? I don't think at age six I was aware uh, or so aware of the passage of time. Um, but talk about that a little bit, how we can use mindfulness to kind of slow down our days and and sense a less busier, faster existence, I guess.
1: I think that a lot of us are on autopilot, you know, just going through the day, and it's really astounding. So some people sort of, like, at the end of the day, wait, what just happened? Or if you, I mean, I know we've all had the experience of getting in the car and getting out of the car and having no idea what happened in between. You know, this is, this is this autopilot that many of us live on. And so one of the outcomes of mindfulness that's so helpful is more of an embodiment, more of an inhabiting of our lives where we stop missing our lives because we teach ourselves to slow down and connect and notice the experience. And so just some anecdotes are things like I have a... a a student who was meditating for the first time and he went through our six week maps class or mindful awareness practice class. And he said that he had been living on a street for 20 years and he never noticed that there were mountains at the end of the street. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of, I mean, and he was like a very, you know, he had a very heart, important job that was, you know, I mean, he was busy. He was so busy. busy. Yeah. Yes. And so and then I've had parents say to me things like, well, I decided that I was going to just jump on this trampoline with my daughter and that's all I was going to do. I was going to be totally present with her. I was putting down my phone. I wasn't going to stress about work. I wasn't going to stress. I was just going to be with her. And she said it was like the greatest experience for being with a child. Now, it's I know it sounds in some ways very, very obvious, but most of us are actually fairly separate it's like um, our heads are with these bodies dangling from it you know we're disconnected so the mindfulness can help us change that
0: it's obvious but we don't necessarily we don't do it to your point and there is so much joy i think what your your examples illustrate is that there's so much joy in little things like noticing mountains or being with your child or um you know engaging with people in the world in a different way, but we don't usually hyper-focus on that, on that noticing and on that joy. So it gives you moments of that, allows you to create moments for that. I'm glad that you brought up the parenting example. I know that you're also a parent and you talked about the, the UCLA maps class, which um, I actually have taken my To teenagers, too, here in Los Angeles. (laughs) So talk a little bit about mindfulness and um, children. There's data there as well, and your kind of personal take on all that.
1: Yeah, um, well, there's a lot I can say. First of all, the data is, there is data there and it's smaller. It's significantly smaller than what's out there for adults. So right. they've done a lot less studies, but the studies, the studies that they have done tend to be associated with schools showing things are connected to learning outcomes. So emo- emotional regulation, that's, that are a le- that's a very big one. And yes. that's especially important with kids. What they see, the research seems to show that the kids who are more significantly dysregulated have more of a change when they go through like a mindfulness program than kids who are sort of already have good executive functioning. Um, so, so emotional regulation, uh, learning outcomes, more uh, some of the interesting research is around more kindness and compassion for themselves and others. So, so it's interesting. It's all very promising. What's happening with the kids now? What I think about it is I think of a number of different things. On one level with little kids, I feel like little kids are already mindful. Mm -hmm. Like kids are just kind of in that zone all the time when they're little. I mean, there's a point where they sort of become more like us. Yes. But so I never feel like, like, oh, little kids have to learn mindfulness unless there's attention or or emotional regulation issues. Then it can be really helpful. As they get older, and as we've seen the incidence of anxiety that's, you know, increasing even in really younger ages of kids, I think it can be a very, very helpful tool, learning some basics of how, of how to not get lost in the fears and thoughts and worries that which mindfulness can teach us. So emotional regulation, also this cultivation of more self-compassion. So there's good research looking at um, teenagers and how it can help uh, help with Self
0: compassion. Yeah. yeah, you're right. I mean, anxiety has become such a, unfortunately, such a common uh, s- sentiment amongst kids and teenagers. And we are seeing it in younger, and younger children, um, as well as such a large spate of behavioral issues and diagnoses of ADD, ADHD. Um, as a physician for adults, I see so many young adults who. Um, have spent most of their childhood on medications like Ritalin and Concerta, which, again, there may be a role for in in some individuals for sure, but there is also data on mindfulness in, in those populations as well, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, we did a study at UCLA, this was um, years ago when I was first hired here, was looking at ADHD in adolescents and adults and going through a mindfulness protocol, which we did. And we had very good results with, um, in particular, conflict attention. There's many types of attention. So conflict attention is when something something is distracting you. You're trying to focus on one thing, but something is distracting you. Can you stay focused on that one thing? And that was the type of attention that was improved by mindfulness training, And the adolescents really loved it. And it didn't mean that we got them to sit still very much, but you can bring mindfulness into (laughs) walking. And one girl I remember was talking, she brought it into her soccer um, games and she would just, when she noticed that she would feel anxious, she would take a breath and come back to the moment. And it really made a big difference for her. So yeah, yeah, there's good. it's, It's interesting to see how it can be used.
0: So as a parent, um, you can speak to uh, the practical side of this as well. And so what's your practice at home with your child? How do you, how do you incorporate this? Do do you offer a formal practice or, and how do you bring it into your day-to-day in your parenting?
1: (laughs) Well, you know how the, that, that joke about like, um, the shoemaker is ki- kids have no shoes. I am uh, a 100%. little bit <laughs> in that category. <laughs> My daughter, you know, it's part of the water she drinks, right? It's she's, she's been going to, to, with me to different places where she's learned meditation since she was little and she is absolutely not into it at all. And when I tried as a, when she was littler to make it very formal, she just rebelled against it and it didn't yes. seem worth it. Yeah. Um. But I feel like she gets it and knows it and and what's what's more important me. So a lot of time, I'll just say this and then I'll speak generally and go back to myself, but I think a lot of parents will come in and say, can you teach my child meditation? Or I don't personally because I don't work with kids, but can you help us because our center you know, can refer that out? Sure. And I often think, wait, I think it's not your kid who needs it. Maybe you need it, right? <laughs> right. Because... Because if we as parents can model it, that's a real, that's what they're getting, you know? And and it's wonderful. I mean, there's all sorts of amazing resources out there for kids. There's some great books. There's some like card decks with beautiful images that like little kids can practice with. I mean, there's so much out there, but I think the most important thing is who we are as parents. So in that way, I feel like my daughter- gets mindfulness through me being, you know, connected to it myself. And one day, you know, she'll make the choice. I take her to like a mindfulness kind of camp for, for five days every year and she loves it, but mostly she loves it because she gets to see her friends. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So she's 10, by the way. Yeah. yeah
0: well, I think um, I I can echo your sentiments. and And personally, I've had that same experience. Like I mentioned, I've taken my children to the UCLA map classes. Um, and while they enjoyed it, they did kind of go there kicking and screaming. And I, and I realized that when I talk about it, there is a little bit of pushback or rebellion. But when I left it alone, um, them having known what it is, they have independently incorporated it. So just recently, my daughter came and shared with me that before her AP bio exam, she was feeling anxious and she spent some moments breathing and closing her eyes and trying to bring her awareness, you know, to the present moment and, and stop worrying about the outcome of the exam. And so you're right, by by introducing these the kids to it, I think you plant the seed. But then you have to give them enough space to let them cultivate that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I love that story. I love to hear that she was doing it. And that's what they do. They kind of take it in and then they remember it, you know, in the future.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of what we do, too, right? We back to the skepticism We (laughs) in it. And so I also would love for you to give us some practical tips for adults, because this is, in my medical practice, uh, and and again, I treat uh, or I, I talk to people about lifestyle change and incorporating healthy eating and nutrition, exercise in order to um, prevent disease. Um, and so I routinely recommend mindfulness, and some people embrace it, and some people really don't feel like they have the resources even to initiate that kind of practice. So what would you say to people like that? How can you make it more
1: bite-sized uh, and, and tangible? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I want to say that mindfulness is not for everybody. So right. just like no medication is for everybody. Yes, and i right? love
0: for you to make that point as well. So yes.
1: Yeah, so it's it's like you have to want to do it. If you don't like it or it doesn't feel right to you, then then you're not going to do it and you're not going to have any results. So, but as long as, I mean, my feeling is as long as someone is doing something that helps them with stress reduction and well-being, that's great. Um, But for those who are interested and want to give it a try, uh, it's helpful to get some guidance. And one of the resources we have at UCLA is uh, an app called UCLA Mindful, which has... um, Tons of different meditations on it, and it starts you with five minutes. So it's not like you have to jump into the deep end and do 30 minutes or an hour or something. Just five minutes a day is really helpful. So finding a time of day where you're less likely to be distracted and will be somewhat awake. And just sitting down and um, listening to the to the audio and practicing along with it is is a great way to just begin some basic incorporation. That app is free, and it will be free into the future. Um, so so learning some basic meditation i mean if you do have access to classes where you can work with a teacher that's fantastic we offer online classes but um if you are local there's uh, lots in los angeles but oftentimes mindfulness is getting so popular there's classes in many many different parts of the country and the world now yes um and then there's the what i think what you the distinction you were making um around informal practices so you can do your meditation, but also can you bring it into your day in various ways? And I'll offer an acronym. That I know you learned in the math classes that is really helpful because mindfulness, like we can all be, it's not hard to be mindful. Anybody could be mindful. You can be mindful right now. And if you're listening to this, I just encourage you for a moment, notice your feet, like just bring your attention to your feet and maybe they're on the floor. Um, and just feel the weight of your feet on the floor and notice there's hardness and maybe a little temperature and might be some vibration and and you just did it you were mindful it wasn't hard to do you just did it what's hard to do is remembering to be mindful right and remembering especially when we need it when we're under stress and our kid does something and we just want to yell at them if we could just remember to pause and breathe So this acronym is STOP, and it stands for stop, take a breath, observe, and then proceed. And so we would, you don't freeze, but you just sort of stop the the activity you're moving forward in. Take a breath, and then, or two, and then observe what's happening inside me. Wow, my heart is racing. My stomach is clenched. My jaw is tight. Okay, and then breathe a few times and then proceed. As you proceed, you proceed with more awareness and that helps to kind of intercept that busy mind. Like, I mean, just an example would be, you know, you get an email and that email is blaming you for something. And the next thing you're about to do is write off your own email, blaming the person back and you know where that goes. Wait, we can stop, take a breath, observe. Okay, I don't have to write this email today. So it's just, it's just little ways of bringing mindfulness into our lives.
0: And I, I do want to highlight what you mentioned, which is, um, I think there is this push right now, so much conversation around mindfulness that people feel almost peer pressure <laughs> to engage in it. And you're right, it's not necessarily for everybody. But I think... The way you describe it of um, just bringing awareness, even if you're not interested in the formal practice, but awareness in those moments of, uh, for example, potential react- reactivity, right? And we we have a million of those a day responding to the driver who cut us off or the email, <laughs> as you mentioned, or so, so there is that piece of just bringing it into your day-to-day and Allowing it to help you notice that those times that you would be reactive and dialing it back a bit. So uh, that less, again, bringing attention to the less formal practice. Um, I love that um and one of the other reasons that i that i do like to introduce it with my patients though is that it also is associated with other health behaviors right so when you do engage in this kind of practice then you're more likely to do mindful eating you're more likely to engage in physical activity the sleep that you mentioned have you found that in your your own anecdotes and and also i'd like to hear a little bit about your health practices your broader health practices
1: Sure. Um, so this one is a little hard to say because, because yes, what I've seen with people, when they start getting more mindful, they start seeing the ways that they're mindless and they want to change it. So maybe they are a kind of mindless eater or they are not taking care of their body. And as they start to have more compassion for themselves and more self-awareness, we do see different change, you know, behavioral changes. However, I don't know. I also, I also know they're the. it's the kind of person who tends to be attracted to mindfulness. So we don't know know, chicken or
0: the egg. Exactly.
1: Yes. So so that's one thing, but, but it's, it is exciting when I hear people saying, yeah. And then this, I also started, you know, sleeping better. And now I'm sleeping, going to bed earlier. And I'm really taking care of my body in that way. So that's, that's very encouraging. Um, personally, you know, I'm, I mean, I've been, I live in California, so like all of us. We eat, live, breathe this stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I'm, I'm, I love to dance. So I go to like Zumba classes and dance classes and stuff. So that's a really big part. And that's actually a really mindful place for me where I just kind of connect with my body and, and you know, let go of the worries of the day and I'm really quite present there. So that's a big piece. I try to eat as well as I can and, um, but not be too judgmental with myself around it. And, um, what else do I do? I try to you know i I think I do I can check some of the boxes of like I try to get enough sleep, I try you know all those things, but I will say that I don't always do everything right at all
0: and and we don't need to right? we don't mm-hmm. we don't most of us don't do everything all the time, and we don't need to. It's just being uh being again to use the word mindful or aware <laughs> to take care in whatever way that you can. And also, I wanted to highlight what you brought up with the self-compassion, and um, because that is a point at which I think healthy behaviors may get derailed. For example, healthy eating and weight management can often be derailed because we don't have acceptance or people don't have acceptance for where they are in that moment. And so that negative self-talk prohibits us from even taking action to begin with. And mindfulness addresses that too, right?
1: Absolutely. And I, I really love uh, the work of Kristen Neff, who's yes. developed the self-compassion, mindful self-compassion program, which combines mindfulness and self-compassion practices. And she sees self-compassion as this combination of using mindfulness to help with the critical thinking and kindness practices, practices that actually cultivate more kind response internally. And, um, and then this recognition of our shared humanity, like we're all struggling in this way. And when you put that together and you really practice it, there's she's done a lot of research showing there's more self-compassion.
0: Yeah, and I think the self-acceptance is one of the critical domains in which uh, mindfulness has been shown to help with behavior change. Um, Is again, being able to meet yourself where you're at in order to allow yourself to make the changes that you wish to make.
1: That's absolutely right. And one of the... the things that, you know, it just, a simple analogy is, wait, when I teach meditation, the basic mindfulness um, skill is attending to something simple and neutral, like your breathing, it doesn't have to be breath, but it could be your breathing, and then your attention wanders away, and then you bring it back, and then it wanders away again, and you bring it back, and it just keeps happening, and you train that, that ability, it's like a, kind of, almost like a muscle at the gym that you, yes. just, it, it strengthens over time. The thing that's really important with this is you don't yell at yourself every time your attention wanders, right? You don't go, get back to the breath, you jerk. That's a, that, would, that would not be cultivating self-compassion. You bring a very kind, loving approach and come back to the present moment. And so that skill, in a way, it transfers out. It's one of the reasons I think that people become more compassionate when they practice mindfulness because they're learning that approach.
0: And I like that you, that you brought that up too, uh, which is that this is, and I, this is how I describe it as well, that it's, it's like building a muscle. It's like lifting that weight repetitively to build your bicep muscle. It's not so much the fact that we veer off because invariably we'll, we will veer off. It's that ability to keep coming back, lifting that weight. And that's what builds the practice, right?
1: Absolutely. That's really important. One of the ways people get very discouraged is they'll say, well, I was trying to meditate, but my mind was wandering all over the place. I couldn't do it and I quit. And so what it's really important, just like you're pointing to, is that we normalize and say, no, no, that's what our our minds do. We've been trained to have a wandering mind. We've been, you know, biologically trained in a, in a sense like. Our species—that's how we survived by searching for threats. I had this just—I had this um, opportunity to teach at the Natural History Museum. Oh wow! Um, a few months ago, a couple weeks ago, maybe, and. I was teaching in the room with the dinosaurs, right? All the dinosaur skeletons. And I was like, at... right? exactly. How appropriate, right? Exactly. And I said, this, you people, this is why your minds wander. Look at these things. You are escaping them. Right. Yeah. It's a, it was an
0: evolutionary process that's remained. <laughs> well, Diana, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Um, thank you for talking to us about what you do and, Um, I think the main take-home points are that, yes, this is a practice that is helpful. Um, There's a lot of data out there. It's not a panacea and not necessarily for everybody. But I think everyone can benefit from bringing in the practice in their day-to-day lives, even if they're not interested in a formal practice. And that's not limited to us or our children or our coworkers or our parents. Um, It's really available for everybody. So thank you so much for, for the conversation and for joining me. And I look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much.